Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on Chasing Hermes. I'm your host, Sean. Jason is my name. How are you doing, Sean? I am really happy to be here. I'm enjoying this moment of recording once again with my partner in crime. Is it, is it a crime, what we're doing here? I don't think so. All right. I'm excited to record again. We are embarking deeper down the rabbit hole of the history of magic, the history of metaphysics, and all things hermetic. So, Sean, do you believe that the universe was created as an act of intentional uh, coming together? <sighs> you know, that's a good question. And, Jason, to be completely honest, I do not know. I don't truly have a belief or an opinion on this. I think a lot of our constructs of creation sort of depend on our understanding of temporality, of beginnings and ends, of causes and effects. Yes and, and no will do. No. <laughs> uh, maybe? <laughs> I'm not sure. Let's assume for a moment that you do believe that it was created. Would you think that the universe was emanated out of God, that, that God's essence created the world, or that he somehow created it out of nothing? Well, I think that in my view, by definition, if God, the one, is the greatest thing that can be, then I think that all of creation must emanate out of the one essence the one essence that is God. Otherwise, there would exist, it would seem, something outside of, of the realm of, of the divine, and I'm not right. sure if that's consistent. You know, that really makes sense. And I guess to most people, it really isn't a big deal whether the universe is of the same essence as God or whether God created out of nothing, right? Right. But this was a major point of contention back in the old days between those who believed that the universe was created out of God's essence versus those who believe that the universe was created ex nihilo, i.e. Mm -hmm. out of nothing. Sure. And the latter group uh, ended up winning that argument uh, and persecuted the former. <laughs> uh, the latter being uh, the church, as it were. Uh -huh. And the former being a, a group of philosophers that we are going to look at today, namely the Neoplatonists. Interesting. That would be the new Platonists? That would be the new Platonists. Although, <laughs> you know, they didn't consider themselves neo-anything. They considered themselves continuing the tradition of Plato, who we met in several earlier podcasts. Oh, yes. The term neo-Platonism only came later when a German historian wanted to separate these later Platonists from what he considered the real Platonists, as it were. Oh, so who are the real Platonists, and, and who are these later Platonists? Well, the quote-unquote real Platonists would be, obviously, <laughs> Plato. Plato, which is a very early philosopher, um, and the school that he formed, and all of his students. They would be the quote-unquote real Platonists. And sure. the Neoplatonists came many centuries later. Oh, wow, okay. Um, so quite a, quite, a, quite a long time after, but they considered themselves continuing the thought and the tradition of Plato. Mm -hmm. So you might wonder, why should we even study these Neoplatonists? What possible interest could that have on us today? 
Yeah, and as we're all interested here on Chasing Hermes, how did they come to influence to such a profound extent the uh, later hermetic thoughts? Well, as it turns out, Neoplatonism was extremely influential, and it only makes sense to study it because Neoplatonism, along with Hermeticism, sometimes they're indistinguishable, by the way, but alongside with Hermeticism, (laughs) it became the major driving force philosophically behind the Renaissance and behind the Renaissance magic uh, that continues on to this day. And Neoplatonism at its heyday, 4th and 5th century AD, Mm -hmm. was perhaps classical paganism's last hope against uh, Christianity, uh, which was really beginning to take a very strong hold on the Roman Empire. Right. And uh, was threatening to squash out all previous forms of religion practiced within the empire. Right. So Neoplatonism was a philosophical and religious tradition, primarily in the Greco-Roman world, around the Mediterranean. So many of us have heard that Neoplatonism is, by and large, uh, a greater source or root of later Hermetic and, and Renaissance philosophy and magic. So I'm interested here in, uh, in who these people were. What, what were the different influences that the Neoplatonists had, and uh, how did that influence later thought? Perhaps most famously, St. Augustine was a Neoplatonist at one point, mm-hmm. before he converted to Christianity. Yeah. And although he reverted from his earlier views, this philosophical school shaped the way he thought and the way he experienced Christ and the way he experienced the Judeo-Christian God. Mm -hmm. Um, And because he was such a prolific writer, it helped shape the understanding of the spiritual realms for all of posterity within the Christian world. And it's interesting to note that these early Christian writers and mystics were large influences in later uh, writings and practices of those who would become official saints within the Christian church. So it's, it's interesting to see that those who persecuted this early form of thought were so greatly influenced by those who were influenced by those being persecuted. <laughs> that is very interesting. And, you know, I think what we can say is that Neoplatonism provides a, I don't want to say framework, but a, a frame of mind, perhaps, mm-hmm. and an approach to the spiritual universe, to those who are so inclined. It provides a starting point, and perhaps that's why it has become so important in the history of mysticism and the history of religion. Christianity is not the only religion that has been influenced by this school of thought. Mm-hmm. Medieval Islam carried on the Neoplatonic tradition, incorporating it into its own tradition, right. uh, and revered some of the Neoplatonic writers very highly, even though they were not Islamic themselves. And you also can't underestimate the influence that Neoplatonic thought has had on the Jewish mysticism, uh, primarily the Kabbalah. The whole idea of the emanations of the uh, Ten Sephirot is almost directly lifted from Neoplatonic thought. Mm. And the whole idea of mapping out hierarchies within the the spiritual realm so that one controls the next and controls the next or controls the next and somewhere along that line uh, is man, that is also a Neoplatonic thought. Absolutely. 
Also, we can't forget the Gnostic movements uh, of the time as well, many of which read the Neoplatonic works and interpreted them for their own needs and purposes, so to speak, and adding their own touch and interpretation to them. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two writings. It really is. It really is. But I want to emphasize that there is a, you know, quote-unquote, pure Neoplatonic school, which is not really a religion. It, it is a set of practices and a set of philosophical ideas, um, but they really sort of fall in between monotheism and polytheism, and it's a product of the time, really, hmm. uh, where I think these philosophers who came out of the polytheistic pagan religions were realizing that they had a new force to reckon with, and that was monotheism, hmm. and they had to bring those two systems together, and that's what makes them so interesting. Right. So, Jason, why don't you start off with uh, some of these writers and, and Neoplatonists? Who, who is said to be the first Neoplatonist? Most scholars agree that Ammonius Saccus, who lived in the uh, 3rd century AD, was probably the first Neoplatonist. But he didn't create any writings of his own, and nothing survives. So the only thing we know about him is from his most famous student, uh, Plotinus. <laughs> so he's like the Socrates of Neoplatonism. Exactly. Or he is like the Isaac Luria of Neoplatonism. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the same idea. These great masters who have these fantastic ideas but fail to write them down, mm -hmm. uh, and the only thing we know about them is by their number one scholar, if you will. <laughs> so we don't know very much about Monius Saccus, but he was a Christian. Plotinus, his student, uh, claims that, that Ammonius Saccus recanted from his Christianity on his deathbed, but he may have had his own reasons for saying that. Hmm, yeah. um, but what's interesting to note is, again, that this is a person, a philosopher, who has undergone baptism. He was brought up a pagan and brought into a Christian uh, community, a very, oh, very early Christian community. At yeah. this time, you know, there would have been you know, a few thousands of Christians at most, you know. Right, not a, not a whole lot. Nothing like we know today. Not a whole lot. They were a very, very minor sect. Wow. And as you may have guessed, all of this happened in Alexandria, as we've seen so many other philosophical <laughs> right. traditions uh, within this same vein. It's all in Alexandria being this melting pot, as it was, of a lot of different ideas, cultures, uh, and traditions. Yeah. Plotinus and Ammonius Saccus were probably both Egyptian, but they were in a Greek community, obviously. They spoke Greek, they taught in Greek, they learned in Greek, but they were very familiar with the Egyptian pantheon. They were still very familiar with the whole Egyptian tradition, which was at this time really fading away. But still having a clear influence. Absolutely, absolutely. And so these are people who have one leg in the Greek, uh -huh. Greek and Roman tradition, one leg in the Egyptian tradition, particularly the philosophical and magical tradition, uh -huh. and then, you know, another leg, if it, as it were, moving towards monotheism and Christianity. Right. So it makes sense that the Neoplatonists lie here in the middle, given the other history that we have explored yeah. in earlier podcasts. Here we see a Neoplatonism, a coming together of both the ancient Egyptian practices as well as this uh, you know, more modern, more philosophical Greek society, and now culminating at the time where Christianity, which was to influence the world greatly through its monotheism, 
is now joining together. Yeah, you can almost say that Neoplatonist philosophers uh, embody the sort of zeitgeist of the, of that time and place, you know, and they encapsulate it in a philosophical tradition that is um, far more detailed uh, than anything that survives of the Hermetic tradition, and that's why mm-hmm. we want to look at it today. Interesting. Okay, now, Sean, I bet you are really uh, bursting at the seams to find out more about Neoplatonism. What's some of the main... I can't tell you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, why don't we go right Quick, into... keep me together. I know, I know. Okay, so, uh, what if we start with uh, the one? The one is their idea of God, but it's a very, very transcendent God. It's not just, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily an accessible God, like the God of the Old Testament, for example, or right. or the, the embodied God of uh, Jesus Christ. It's really an unknowable and completely transcendent and infinite God. And he is what in Kabbalah is often called the first cause. Right. Right. The prime mover, as it were. Yeah. But he is also... The source, as we discovered earlier, uh, of all things, that everything emanates Mm -hmm. from this one. So, at the same time, he is the source of all substance in the universe. Mm -hmm. Okay, the origin point. Uh, The origin point, yeah. Okay, the original essence. He is the original essence. Do you remember when we, uh, very early on, when we talked about the four elements, and we talked about Anaximander, we talked about Thales, and all these pre-Socratic philosophers? Absolutely. Uh, And do you remember how they were all competing about who had the true element, right? (laughs) Right. What was the true one source? Exactly. One said, well, everything basically boils down to water. And the next one would say, no, no, everything boils down to fire, right? (laughs) Right. Neoplatonism is similar, but it's saying everything boils down to this, the essence of God. Right. This is called monism, which is the idea that everything can be reduced to just this one thing, this sure. monad. Right. I remember right. talking about that. Right. And yeah, I remember you talking about that too, but some of our listeners might not. And if you haven't heard that episode, do go back and listen to it after you've heard this Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yeah. And give us a good review on iTunes. <laughs> you will do everything I tell you. <laughs> Yeah, so this is called a, an idealistic monism, which is the idea that everything that exists really are different forms of the mind of God, right? Sure. And they're really saying the universe and everything that you see, every, the fabric of time and space can be reduced to the mind of God. And this is where, obviously, a big split <laughs> <laughs> happens between the Neoplatonists and what was to become the, the great Christian church. Sure. Right. But the Neoplatonists were saying the universe was not created out of nothing. The universe was created out of God meditating on itself, the mind of God producing matter. Oh, that's interesting. That, again, sounds very familiar looking at it from a Kabbalistic perspective. But in creating the universe, the one started by dividing himself into two. Okay. Right? So the monad produced the dyad. All right, the first separation. Exactly. Could you imagine if, if you were a Neoplatonist and you would blaspheme every time you said the one? <laughs> that would be very hard. Yeah, that would suck. <laughs> the words one, two, and three were so, so divine that you couldn't even say them. <laughs> oh, one, damn it. <laughs> Anyhow. Now, the monad, the one, is akin to the intellect of God. 
And the dyad is the intermediary, which is the psyche or soul and thought of God. Okay. So the one produced the two, and together, seeing that they were now no, no longer one, that gave rise to the many or the third. Hmm. The triad. Exactly. This triad, which is at the same time number three by itself, and the monad, the dyad, and the triad, these created and gave rise through emanation to all things. Hmm. This is starting to sound familiar. Why does it sound familiar? Well, obviously the concept of the Christian Trinity, right, which was uh, an area of great contention uh, back in the early formation of the Christian Church. As I recall, the concept of the one emanating from the three. So my question is, did the Christian concept of the Trinity exist before or after this Neoplatonic uh, concept of the monad, the dyad, and the triad? I can't answer that. But what I can say is that the idea of the monad, the dyad, and the triad is older than Neoplatonism itself. Oh. You can find parts of it in the works of Plato, mm -hmm. but probably even more influential were the Chaldean oracles, which is a, uh, right. a collection of writings that only exists actually because the Neoplatonists revered it so much that they mm -hmm. quoted it. Um, that's the only way that we, this, this text survives. And the Chaldean oracles is very peculiar and particular about this point of the monad producing the dyad, producing the triad. So right. this whole idea of the triunity mm -hmm. or triple unity does not start with Christianity. That much I can say. Fascinating. See, uh, we learn something every day. <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, we learned in previous episodes that uh, some hermetists believed in an intermediary god. Right. One that stood between the unknowable god and creation. Uh, uh, basically a creation god. Right. The, the demiurge. The, demiurge. the artist's the artist hand, the demiurge, yeah. right? And he appears also in Neoplatonist thought mm. as uh, a completely benign god. He is not this uh, uh, postulated source of all evil, as he is in some traditions. Right. And, and when, when Neoplatonist thought was, was brought over into Gnosticism, they very famously made a demon, or a devil, even, out of the devil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, uh, evil is not really part of the Neoplatonist worldview. Evil... Really? Yeah. Evil is really just brushed aside as the, the absence of good. You know, uh, as we talked about earlier about um, evil being basically the shadow that objects cast right. uh, when exposed to the good. It's interesting because so much of religious thought often comes out of a, uh, a need, a necessity to explain the existence of evil. I remember we, we mentioned that also early on. And here we see an entire tradition that doesn't seem to be coming out of that need, but out of a different type of need. And that is, of course, in a tradition where the problem of evil is already known, mm. right? The problem of innocent suffering is already known. So it, it makes you wonder, did, did these philosophers simply avoid the question or did they or did they really believe that you could explain evil uh, satisfactory w by this means hmm. 
And uh, it also, by definition then, did not believe that the world was evil. Remember, I mean, a lot of Gnostic sects and right. even some hermetists really saw the world and the body as something evil. Some Gnostics were what's called docetists, mm-hmm. which is to say that Jesus could not have been corporeal. He would only seem, doce, physical, because to have a body was so uh, dirty ah, and right. so... Uh, low that there's no way that a a divine being could have had Mm. uh, a a body. Um, But not so with the Neoplatonists. They were perfectly fine with the world and they enjoyed the beauty of it. They enjoyed uh, having a body. Mm -hmm. Well, then that's something I have in common with them. (laughs) (laughs) You enjoy the world on a daily basis? (laughs) I enjoy it on a daily basis. Yeah, like Bill and Ted. (laughs) Okay. And, and speaking of Bill and Ted, um, every soul is on a journey, uh, not a bogus journey, hopefully, but a, a journey towards perfection. And uh, on this journey, we are helped by the practice of philosophy, uh, by the practice of worship, uh, and even the practice of magic, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and all of these things can bring salvation to us, not in some distant afterworld, but in this life right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also believed in reincarnation, that uh, the soul would reincarnate many, many different times. And depending on how well you did in this life, you uh-huh. would then come back as slightly better fated or slightly more ill-fated in the next life. At the end of each life, you would return to what they called the source, to have your memory wiped uh, after you basically reviewed the plus points and the minus points of, of, of each life. So they would view then the goal of the aspirant, the goal of their movement was to to reunite once again back to the source from which they were separated uh, at the moment of their creation. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that, hmm. exactly like and, that. Okay. Excellent. And each person, when they were born, would be born under the auspices of certain lesser gods, right? Uh, And this is how the monotheism of this unknowable one is joined with the classical pantheons of Rome and Mm. Greece, because these lesser gods would have an influence on your day-to-day life. It would have an influence on your your natal chart, for example. They were, many of them believed in astrology and casting charts. Hmm. Uh, They also had a very elaborate demonology, and by demonology, uh, it really is more of an uh, angel-ology, if you will. (laughs) It it is, again, this word uh, daimon, which I guess basically just means spirit in, in, in Greek, right? Yeah. It's not a demonology in the sense of Grisha, black magic. Right. Um, although they did also believe that there were material daimons which were not to be invoked by an upright individual, and they hmm. advised against Grisha in favor of theurgy, oh. which uh, is then the, the more soul-searching and the more uh, uplifting form of, of magical practice. Hmm. So, Ammonius Saccus taught Plotinus. Plotinus taught Porphyry. Okay. Porphyry was, a, uh, was not from Alexandria. He was from Syria. He was very anti-Christian. He really didn't uh, like uh, Christianity at all oh. because he saw it as a threat to, to his culture. Mm-hmm. And Porphyry famously taught Iamblichus. Ah. And Iamblichus is the person who made Neoplatonism uh, a household uh, uh-huh. word, if you will. Whereas Plotinus was very intellectual, Iamblichus was extremely practical and very, he was a very prolific writer, and he, he wrote in a way that people could understand. 
Uh So you could say that Iamblichus really popularized Neoplatonism for a much, much larger audience. And it was through Iamblichus that Neoplatonism went from a, a small philosophical school to become the pagan philosophy of its time. Tell us about Iamblichus. What what did he add to Neoplatonism? I mean, did it alter in any way under his writings? He did add uh, many things, and he most of all, he made it more accessible to people. And he's often seen as one of the great apologetics of the magical theurgical tradition. Oh. And it is in this aspect that he becomes very, very important to all of the developments of, of, of the magical thought after mm-hmm. this time. Yeah, it seems like there were many parallels from, from what I know of Iamblichus and his approach to theurgy, you know, his approach to the whole process of, of divinization. Here we see through the Neoplatonic perspective. Uh, but there, there are many parallels with modern day practices, you know, where there is a ritualistic approach, even in today's practices as there were for Iamblichus. Yeah, absolutely. I think we owe a tremendous debt to Iamblichus, and it is very, very fascinating to read his texts. They're accessible, mm-hmm. and he's, he, he ponders things, and he, he's not very lofty. He doesn't just declare how things are set upon high, you know? Mm-hmm. He makes things very practical and down-to-earth, and that is extremely... <laughs> Uh, refreshing to read. He feels so much more modern than, for example, trying to read the original Platonic texts, which are, they're really hard to penetrate. So how would Iamblichus tell us to approach this process of theurgy? What might we do on a practical aspect uh, in order to begin or continue this journey uh, back to the source? To Iamblichus, really the purpose of philosophy is to in his words, become a god or become god. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this process of uh, henosis that we've seen before, mm-hmm. which is basically returning a return of the soul back the way it came, retracing our steps back to uh, the supreme good. And the way to do this uh, is through the many virtues that he outlines. And, and they mm-hmm. range from the civil virtues of leading a moral and upright life. Sure all the way up to very, very spiritual virtues and how to behave towards the gods and how to behave mm-hmm. towards well, what we would now call angels, right, and spirits, right. And, and just how to be a good citizen <laughs> of the universe, you know, the grander universe. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the journey of a theurgist as a journey out of an escaping fate. We would say that the gods, the lesser gods, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, influence us at our birth through astrology and you know through your 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 particular constellations that you had when you were born this would control your fate and some of that would be inescapable except by theurgy and just like in hermetism you would climb these these spheres like a ladder Mm -hmm. right these seven spheres of the planets essentially and at each step, purifying yourself of the influence of this planet. And in so doing, you would then reach a place where you could truly begin your ecstatic contemplation on unity with uh, the One, with God. Interesting. And it uh, it seems through a lot of this that as 
we become more and more purified as we ascend the ladder, as it were, back to the source. That not only do we gain, as we saw with the Greek and, and the Egyptian magicians, uh, magical powers or divine powers, but it seems here we also gain higher degrees of freedom. Yeah, yeah. You know, where the more we reside within our corporeal self, the less free we truly are. Uh, but rather through this process of theurgy, as we ascend back to that source, we also derive our truest sense of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. It's a journey to escape the bondage of nature. Right, the bondage of, of your mortality, right? Right, yeah. But interestingly, Iamblichus also admits that theurgy or this divine working and working with the angels and, and the spirits has its limit. It has its time and its place. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, once you're done, you're done. Mm. And that's when true philosophy takes over, right? Huh. So theurgy and divine working really is only for the starters. Oh. Right? And, and once you've reached this enlightenment that theurgy promises, mm-hmm. you're done. You don't need to do it anymore. Huh. Now you can contemplate unity with the one. And I imagine that then becomes a reward unto itself. <laughs> it's interesting how he talks about meditating on the one and, and, and unifying with the one. Okay. The way he talks about it is that you begin by contemplating corporeal things, the matter around you. Mm-hmm. And after doing so for a while, you withdraw and uh, remove from your mind all these physical things. You just let them disappear and you focus on the depths of your own being, of your own noose, as it were. And once you have probed those depths, you will find within this empty space, the silence and this utter forgetfulness of who you are. Wow. This complete losing yourself of consequently finding yourself in God. And, you know, this is, this is really the, 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 the bread and butter of mysticism right there. And in so many ways parallel to the meditations of St. Teresa of Avila that we talked about in an earlier podcast. And also some practices from, from St. John of the Cross, other mystics. You know, this is, this is really fascinating to me, Jason, because it seems that through Iamblichus we see an actual praxis, an actual theurgistic working that truly just unfolds out of the cosmology itself, right? It's out of their understanding of creation from the one to the many, that we can then take this journey back to the one by reversing the process, as it were. We begin by contemplating the many, or the the material things, the multifarious, and we slowly take our mind back to its original state. And the reason why we should read and return to Iamblichus is because he writes it so nicely and so elaborately. Yeah. I can recommend one of his main works, which is completely available online. We'll, we'll put a link on the website. Uh, and it's called, plainly, uh, Theurgia, or On the Mysteries of Egypt. And the nature of this text is that his teacher, Porphyry, was uh, unhappy with some of the things that Iamblichus was teaching back in Syria. And mm-hmm. Porphyry wrote him a short letter, well, basically challenging Iamblichus to explain some of the things that he was teaching, because it did not make sense to Porphyry at all. Porphyry is, for example, asking Iamblichus, why should the gods obey humans? <laughs> why, 
what could possibly persuade the gods to answering a human call? And why is it that the things that we revere so highly, these gods and spirits and beings, are then treated not as superiors, but as inferiors uh-huh. to do our bidding once we've invoked them? And he asks all of these things, and Iamblichus responds in a very long and elaborate letter. It's because of this writing that we can see Iamblichus as this great apologetic for theurgy. Here with the Neoplatonists, we see the transition away from the type of, I guess one might say, the vulgar magics of the folk religion, be it through Egypt or the Greeks, and we see magic here transitioning into the more spiritual, the more divine, the more benevolent realm of magic, where rather than just conjuring demons and writing curses and trying to uh, gain riches and, and love, we see the Neoplatonic magician, right, the one who seeks to unify with God first, and from that unification, his workings with these divine beings, whether they are viewed of as gods, angels, spirits, you know, and all the other aspects of the divine that we see uh, in later Renaissance magic. It seems as though we see that transition here at this juncture with the Neoplatonists and Iamblichus. Iamblichus really gives words and concepts to the high magic. He defends it, he explains it, and he puts it into context that makes it just beautiful. And I agree with you. This is not, you know, your... Uh, <laughs> this is not your grandfather's magic. <laughs> this is not a good off my lawn spell. <laughs> this is a far cry removed from the I-want-to-make-love-in-the-underworld type magic that we discovered in, in, in the Egyptian right. episode. Mm-hmm. For example, Iamblichus talks about an invocation of your own personal guiding demon. And again, this is not a, an evil demon. This is your, your guardian, your own personal guardian, right? Like a guardian angel. Right, exactly. He explains, is not part of your soul. It is a part of the divine celestial hierarchy that your soul chooses before you incarnate as an example, as a guide. Hmm. And this guardian angel takes it upon himself to direct you through all of the stages of your life, through his own mind, and guiding you towards the completion of your own self fulfillment and this fulfillment of becoming as a god and at that point the work of the guardian angel is over and he steps aside to give place to the superior god and he gives tribute to god together with you wow well i have to tell you jason that uh you know i've learned a lot about these neoplatonists i had no idea that so much of our current hermetic tradition so much that i had only traced back to the Renaissance, actually predates by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, the Neoplatonists were influenced by more ancient traditions, but it seems here we find the most recognizable aspect of modern theurgy, of modern hermetic divine magic that sets it apart from the more vulgar, goetic, demonic black magic of ancient Persia, of ancient Egypt, of ancient Greek. I hope our listeners 
are as excited and passionate as I am to go read some of this iamblichus, go read some more of the Neoplatonists to, to come to learn even more about our modern tradition and what it is, uh, hopefully, we are doing here. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Well, I'm sure we'll have plenty of reason to come back to the Neoplatonists in future episodes. With that in mind, go play, go <laughs> practice, go enjoy matter, and go enjoy the spirit. Excellent. And uh, we'll be here when you return. Most definitely. And uh, I think uh, for the next few weeks, I'm just going to sit in my room and contemplate things and allow them to fade away and contemplate the Great One. Watch it burn. <laughs> Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com. <laughs>